and we've been going through the letters in the book of Revelation. Um, the Revelation was written by John, one of the twelve apostles, and it was in the latter years of his life. He had been exiled to the isle, an island called Patmos. Now you've got to realise that the, the other eleven um, all died, were all martyred in different ways for their faith. So he's the only one that wasn't martyred. Um, uh, church history um, or tra- tradition teaches that they tried to kill him by putting him in a, uh, a vat of boiling oil. Um, but it only, it, it only it injured him, as you can imagine, but didn't kill him. So then they just exiled him to Patmos, um, which was a kind of like, I guess, maybe similar to sort of the Russian gulag in the last century. It's kind of a work, you know, like a work mining kind of island. And so this is where he is. He's in the middle of exile. He's an old man when he receives this revelation in his later years. They reckon it was written in probably AD 90s, around that sort of time. And... Um, Part of what happens is, is that he, he has a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now bear in mind, John, it seems, was the most intimate of the disciples with Jesus to the extent that he describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Um, in case that gets you worried, I thought he loved me too. Um, he loved, loves everyone. But there was a particular chemistry, friendship if you like, Jesus the man and John connected. There was a friendship and a closeness there um, to the extent that at the Last Supper, John Lady's head on the chest of Jesus as they, re- they would recline around the table. They wouldn't sit on chairs. As we do in that part of the world, you tend to recline, have a very low down table and just recline. You kind of lie down on your side and eat. And, G- and John just laid his head on Jesus' chest and is very, very intimate. Then he sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he falls on his face as though dead. Because suddenly he's face to face with the exalted, ascended Jesus. And he has this a tremendous vision of this one whose face is like the sun shining in its strength and whose eyes are like fire and there's this sword coming out of his mouth and it's, it's terrifying. Um, and then Jesus says, write down what I'm about to share and, and the rest is the book of Revelation. Now it starts with seven letters to seven churches in the area of Asia Minor, um, modern day Turkey around that kind of area. And um, what it is, there are seven very specific messages to seven specific congregations. But the book of Revelation is rich in numbers, symbolism, numerology. And so the reason that it's seven is significant. With in, in, in the Bible, the number seven represents completion or perfection. And so although these seven letters were to seven specific churches in seven specific ages, um, they're also for the church, the complete church, if you like, across history. So we've been learning much from them. We looked at the church in Ephesus two weeks ago and how they were called as a church to be a witness in lampstand that shone out, but they'd lost their first love of talking about Jesus, they'd gone quiet, and as a result, Jesus says, I'm going to take your lampstand or I'm going to close you down if you don't repent. Last week, we looked at the church in Smyrna, where we, we found out that they, really, the message coming through there was that they were called to be a faithful bride and not to have eyes, in that sense, for any other lover. And so, uh, biblically, there's the symbolism of Jesus is the, uh, the groom and the church is the bride, and there's to be that single eye to one another. So, if you can imagine, you know, when a, a wedding day, and you see the bride Walking, walking down to the front and the groom at the front and everyone in the congregation is going, looking at the bride and then looking at the groom. And really what they're doing is they are delighting in looking at them gaze at one another. Um, and but wouldn't it be a horrific thing if, if as you're looking at the bride, suddenly she looks to the side and begins to eye up another guy in the congregation? You know, what would you think? You know, you think this thing needs to stop right away. In the Bible, when Christians, those who profess to follow Christ, get into idolatry... Other things capture the first place in their heart. They begin to worship other things. That's described as spiritual adultery. And so really, the church in Smyrna, they would be in, um, they would be, the, the lesson there is that the church is called to be a faithful bride and they were under tremendous pressure to fall into idolatry or adultery and um, they were called to overcome fear of hardship and death because they were being persecuted for their love for Jesus. 
This week we're going to look at the church in Pergamum. So if, you'd like, if you've got a Bible with you, um, it's going to come up on the screen anyway. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, um, verse 12 to verse 17. And I'll, just, I'll explain why the, the, the colours are up there in just a moment. Um, but actually, I'll do, that. I'll do that now. As we've been going through this, this uh, series, I've tried to just highlight different things to help you understand the book of Revelation as a whole, just because I wanted to just kind of, it's one of those books you can read it and think, this is amazing, but what does it mean? So I've been just trying to help you just look at, understand certain things. So last week we looked at this phrase, hear his ears, let me hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches. What does that mean? Unpacking that and various things. I want to just show you, teach you a little bit about the rhythm of the book here. Um, and just I've highlighted kind of twins in this package, if you like. So we've got to the angel of the church in Pergamon, right? The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. That's Jesus. And then later... Repent, if not, I'll come to you soon and war against him with the sword of my mouth. So you see there's a rhythm there. There's, there's something we introduce to Jesus with the, with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and then later the sword comes back into play. Um, 2.13, you have, yet you hold fast my name. He's talking about their faithfulness in their witness there and, and in their faithfulness to him. And at the end, um, one of his rewards, if you overcome, I'll give you a, a, a white stone with a new name written on it. So you've got this word play on name coming through there. And then in the blue, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then what you wouldn't know is, is that in terms of et, um, etymology, so the, the, root, the history behind the word Nicolaitan, it means one who overcomes you. Okay? And then later he says, to the one who conquers, or to the one who overcomes. And so I just want to highlight that what you've got in Revelation is loads of kind of rhythm and kind of uh, something being mentioned, and then mentioned again shortly afterwards, and you're supposed to link it up and therefore understand what it means. So if you're reading Revelation in a short passage, just try to look for things which occur more than once, and that'll help you make sense of it and understand it. So I just wanted to just kind of, just trying to help you read the book as well as we go through the series. Anyway, on we go. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so obviously straight away there's some pretty strong stuff in there. What does it mean? You dwell where Satan's throne is. What are we getting at there? So we're going to work through this and just understand. Maybe I think maybe we'll just keep this passage up here. Um, often when I prepare, it comes very easily. And so I know what scriptures I'm going to use. So there's a big PowerPoint of various scriptures I'm going to pull together. It's not been like that with this message. Um, I know there's something the Lord wants to bring, so I'm confident of that. But um, there's no other scriptures. I'm, I'm sure we'll pull them in spontaneously, but they won't come up on the screen. So we'll keep this up for the morning if we like. Okay. So there's a church in Pergamon. Jesus here is described as the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. What does that represent? It comes out of his mouth, which you just think, that just looks weird. What does it mean? He's talking about his words. Jesus' words have the power to do what a sword does, which is strike to the heart of you and separate what you're really about. If you read the Gospels, you can't get away from that. You can't just get by with dead religion when you get near to Jesus. His words are so penetrating. He speaks about the love of money. He speaks about the love of this age at the expense of the love of eternity. He speaks about lust. He speaks about anger. He speaks about these things that we all live with, 
and that we all struggle with. And his words that come in, rather than just fudging things or bringing some nice ideas, that's not Jesus, it's a sword. The words come in, they cut to the heart of who we are and they separate what are you really about. Are you about God or are you about you or are you about someone or something else? And it separates. So Hebrews 4 verse 12 says the word of God is, is, is living and active sharper than a two-edged sword. And it's able to separate soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and, and really reveal the intentions of your heart. What are you about? And so Jesus is coming and he's saying to this church in Pergamon, what are you about? Because there's some of you, you're doing great. Others of you are into some really bad stuff. What is, and so it's almost even a separation of the congregation. They, they're not all on the same page. They're not all going in the same direction. And so it's very relevant for these, for these people to hear this. And, and obviously there's some very strong words coming about what Jesus is going to do with that sword if some of them don't repent, and we'll, we'll get into that later. But let's concentrate for a little while on this, which is a very unusual verse, verse 13. I know where you dwell. Every time we've looked at this, Jesus starts to I know. Ephesus, I know your works. Smyrna, I know your tribulation. Pergamum, I know what it's like where you live. I know what it's like. I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's thrown is. What does that mean? Well, it could mean a few things. Behind uh, Pergamon, there was a conical mountain, and part of that, there would be like, it would be like a, a maze almost of different kind of temples and uh, weird things. But at the top, there was a throne like altar to Zeus, who was obviously worshipped as the chief Greek god. It could have been referring to that. It could have been that Pergamon was the first city to build a temple to, for Caesar worship. They was the first one to do it. Could have been referring to that. Could have been that there was a, one of the prominent cults in the city was the worship of um, Eclentius, who was the serpent god of healing. They were really into that. So it could have been those things. Um, but I think the point is this. There were peculiar pressures in that location that Satan was behind. And Jesus says, I know. I know. You are facing particular satanic opposition simply because of where you live. Now I wanted to look at this a bit because... One of the most common threads that comes through as we look after people pastorally is this whole thing of life in London. I didn't know it was going to be like this. Because <laughs> I think it's exciting, isn't it? And you come and say, like, wow, it's really exciting. But I think there are various pressures that we need to just look at and understand. How does this work? And if you don't realise that sometimes it's satanic, then you won't overcome it. You'll try and deal with it in other ways rather than at its root. This is a satanic thing you're facing here and therefore you need to know, number one, that Jesus knows all about it and he's going to give you keys to come through it and overcome it. So if you're brought up in London, you're used to it. You're used to the pace. You're used to the size. You're used to the fact that there can be so many people and yet so lonely. You're used to the pressures. You're used to the seductions and the lures and the various things that are on offer. So, you know, when we were on holiday in Eastbourne and I'd go for prayer walks, it was... It was very calm. I went on a prayer walk this morning and one lady offered me business, you know. No, thank you, darling. <laughs> can kind of, if you're not in a, in a good place, it can kind of unsettle your praying equilibrium. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And you just have to be aware that's where you live. That's where you live. That's what it is. And you need to know you're in the right place, don't you? But you need to be aware there are particular pressures that come. Even for some of you, you may be, you may be in academia, and it's all about the intellect. Now, thank God for the gift of the mind. But, what does the Apostle Paul say? He says in 1 Corinthians, he said, if any of you think you're wise in this world, let him become a fool, so that he might become wise. 
Because there's a, there's a fundamental flaw to the wisdom of this world, and it's this. The world in its wisdom did not come to know God. It's a fundamental flaw. Back in the garden, you'll know, you'll be just like God, knowing good and evil. And it's just, there's frighteningly some truth in it, but it's all wrong. It's totally off-centre. And so if you're in that realm, in that academic realm, and you're a believer, and you can't explain everything about why you believe what you believe, you can give a good defence, you can go through the apologetics, but at the end of the day, you know why? Because you know. Don't you? (laughs) As a believer, how do you know Jesus is who he said he is. Fundamentally, because you know. Fundamentally. You can give reasons for the resurrection, you can give historical sources and all it. Yeah, but at the end of the day, what is it? Why do you follow him? Because he's revealed himself to me and I know him. There's nothing I can do about that. Why, why aren't you open to other religions? Because I, I found the pearl of great price. I mean, I found, I've found it. So, you know, but you're so narrow. It's not that. I've found it. I've, I'm, you know, I've found it. There's a, there's a, there was a gap in me this shape, and it's I've, what I've found fits perfectly and is much more beautiful than anything I could have imagined. And I know him. I know God. What can I do? Yeah. And so, but people can say, oh no, and they can scorn you and laugh at you because in the academic world, the intellect is everything. And it's like, well, yeah, I will use my brain and I will think it through, but I know him. What can I do? And it can be a pressure, and you can feel like the idiot, the class idiot. Because you can't, you can't dot every R across every T. It's a pressure. It can be, it's a satanic pressure. Or maybe you're in the, the city and it's all, about, it's all about being a go-getter and being self-sufficient, being able to prove yourself and you know, be able to work your way out the ranks. And it's all about, I can do it. It's all about, now you believe in yourself. And you're one who says, do you know what? The, 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 the foundation of my faith is that I can't do it. The foundation of my faith is that what is ultimately needed, which is for me to be reconciled to God, is completely out of my power and I can't do it. I need mercy, I need grace, <laughs> I, need, I, need, I need God to just have compassion on me, I need his strength. This can, this can make you feel incredibly insufficient and small if you are surrounded by an environment that is built on self-sufficiency. That's satanic. It's satanic. Why? Because we are not made for autonomy. We're made to know God. It's a false promise, you see? Because here's the thing. If you can build up enough self-confidence and enough self-sufficiency, you can get very far in life. So it's not complete rubbish. You can get very far in life. But what do you need in life to know God? When it comes to that, can't do it. You need mercy. Or maybe you're working in a, just around the whole inner city urban kind of scene and the youth scene and, and, and you're with youngsters and you are faced with constantly with a total disregard for authority. You're faced constantly with this, um, with, with, with a lot of the things that the teenagers are struggling with at the moment, the gang culture becoming mainstream and often with the values of that in terms of you must respect me. If you don't, I will intimidate you into it. You're faced with the, 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 the loose sexual immorality often associated with that. Girls called bitches and treated like that. I mean, just the vile stuff. And you're facing that day to day and it can wear you down. It's satanic. It's satanic. There's a spiritual power to it that if you're not aware of what you're facing, it will ebb away at you and it will wear you down. Jesus, I know where you live. I know where you work. I know what it's like. I know what it's like. Maybe it's just that around you there's just masses of temptation. 
you know. It's just loads of temptation. Sexual temptation, money, love, love of money, whatever it is. And here's the thing, you see. And we don't talk about this loads because the Bible doesn't say loads about it, but the Bible is clear that there is a whole reality going on that is not perceivable with the human eye. This heavenly realm, if you like, where angels and demons are warring, where, where you find that demonic powers can get behind whole cultures, whole nations, whole groups of people and affect the thinking and affect the value system. And you as a believer, you go in that and you are suddenly in a very alien environment. It's like, how? And you can suddenly feel, I don't know how to survive. I want to just look at Daniel for a few minutes and then look at Jesus and then bring some encouragement. You see, Daniel was um, a Jew, loved the Lord, and um, he was around during the time where uh, Jerusalem was um, under the attack of the Babylonians and it was taken off in exile to Babylon. Babylon was very, very different. Babylon was known really for its um, polytheism, worship of loads of different gods and it was an incredibly cruel um, nation, incredibly proud nation and Daniel gets taken along and he's exiled along with a group of those who are kind of uh, potential for, you know, these guys are going to go a long way. And um, first thing we find in Daniel 1 is that Daniel says, you know what, I'm actually, I'm not going to eat this food here. Um, why? Look, I'll be defiled by it. Why? Because it's food that's associated with idol worship and it's, it'll be about partaking in idol worship. I'm not going to actually eat that. And, uh, and, and the guard in charge of Daniel says, look, you've got to, I'm, I'm, I'm dead meat if you don't eat this. Daniel says, give us 10 days on vegetables and water and then see how we're looking. And so they, they does it for 10 days, almost as a covert operation. And they go to Daniel and pl- Daniel and his friends are plumper than the, than the rest of them and they're looking healthy and they're allowed to do it. But there's that moment where Daniel comes into an environment that is alien, he spots something and he says, that will be compromised, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You think, Daniel, what's going to happen to you? You could be killed, you could be beheaded, you might not advance, they've got high hopes for you, you could be... He says, that's not the point, I'm not going to do it. End of story, it's compromise. I'm not eating it. Why? Will it defile me? And the environments that you are in and that you find yourself in, you have to be able to ask yourself, are they asking me to do anything that will defile me? If they, that, that will defile me? If they are, I'm going to say no. But what if you lose your job? Okay, you lose your job. You lose your job. Because if you don't, you will lose a lot more. You will lose a lot more. And you will regret it. I remember being in work, you know, it's a funny little illustration, really. I've told it before, but when I was, used to work in catering and they tried to get me to sell these food, and I knew the food was out of date. I said, I can't do it. I just thought, well, that's the end of that job, you know. Now, now okay, I want to totally accept beforehand. It wasn't an amazing career. And uh, my mortgage didn't hang on it and all of that. But I think at its heart, it's the same issue. It's the same issue. Who is my Lord? Who's my Lord? It's Jesus. I'm not going to do it. So, thankfully, I just said, fine. I won't be able to respect that. But there are those moments where that comes. And you've got to look people in the eye and say, I can't do it. I just can't do that. Later on, that, that, um, the king sets up this golden image and says, everyone has to bow down to it. When you hear the flutes and the bagpipes, they, oh, bagpipes in Babylon, who'd have thought it? Anyway, when you hear them, <laughs> you've got to bow down. I don't know. But, uh, the Scottish get everywhere, don't they? But, uh, <laughs> Everyone must bow down, all right? That's the deal. And Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like, well, we're not going to do it. Word gets back to the king. The king is enraged. Why? Because his authority has been undermined. Yes, that's right. That's right. And sometimes you will have to undermine someone else's authority because you're under God's authority. 
Generally, as a Christian, you submit to authority because every authority is in there by God. When they start telling you to do things that God says no to, then you say no. They said, we're not doing it. They said, well, okay. They, 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 they heat the furnace up sevenfold to the extent that the guards throwing the three men in there die <laughs> at the doorway. And, and, and just before they go in, the three men say, well, look, God's going to deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship. We're not going to do it. That's the attitude you've got to have. Throw them in there. And the king goes, how many did we throw in? He said, three. There's four in there. And uh, the Lord's just in there with them. They come out, don't even smell of smoke. And then what does the king do? He says, everyone... I, if you don't, he's, he's, I mean, he's a bit of an extreme character, this king. He said, now, since if you don't start worshipping their God, I'm going to pull your arms off on stuff like that, you know. <laughs> this is crazy. But the point is, the whole kingdom is turned around. How? Three men don't compromise. Daniel 6. He's being promoted. Not because he's particularly ambitious, because he loves the Lord. And the Lord thinks, this is a trustworthy guy, I'll promote him. Important point. And then other people get jealous. They say, how can we, how can we deal with Daniel? Oh, he keeps doing that praying three times a day thing towards Jerusalem, you know, because obviously Daniel's not at home and to the Jews in those days, Jerusalem itself was a big deal, so there's window open, we could see Jerusalem and that and he'd pray visibly. I say, so they get the king to sign this law. King, just for one month, people are only allowed to pray to you. And uh, if they don't do it, then we kill them. King says, fine, signs it. <laughs> And then he realises, oh, you know, because he loves Daniel. The king's like, oh, no, what have I done? Um, and so what does Daniel do? Here's Daniel, he finds out about the law. He says, what I'm going to do? Well, we can say, well, I'll, I'll still do it, but I'll pray inside my wardrobe. No. He op- keeps his window open and he carries on doing it. Why? Well, that's what I did before. That's what I'll do now. I'm not going to go covert. I'm not going to go covert. What happens? The lions then. What happens? Well, the lions just don't eat him. And the king can't sleep, he's up all night, and, oh, six o'clock, right, runs down, Daniel, you're there, I'm fine. And then what they do, they throw the other guys in. And as soon as they, before they hit the floor, you know, they're being mauled. So there's just this principle here of, of understanding, what is, it, what is it about Daniel? Here's what it is. There's a, such a work of grace in his heart. There's such a work of God's grace in his heart. God has, he's, he's, he's just let God work on him so deeply He's become so clear now. He knows who he's about. He's about the Lord. That's it. And he will serve and honour and love others. But the moment anyone tries to get him to do something that means he won't honour the Lord, he says, can't do it. Because the battle internally has been won. This is the point, guys. It's about the battle internally. You've got to come right through. and You've got to allow God to deal with you and to work on you so that you come right through to the place, what am I about? I'm about Jesus. I'm about the Lord. And Jesus says to these guys, you've done well. You didn't deny my faith. Even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So he commends them. And I want to say to you guys, look, I want to just say, those of you that know the Lord and you love him, just keep letting him work on you, deal with you, be discerning to your environment and the values that are coming. Ask yourself, is, 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 will I be compromising if I do this? Because the interesting thing about Daniel is this. Daniel let his name be changed to Belshazzar. And Belshazzar was one of the names of kind of like the sort of the, the foreign gods in, in, in Babylon. And you think, oh. And it seems like with that, he was like, no, I can roll with that. I'll give a bit there, no problem. But you ask me to do that? No. And you've got to know in your own heart, what's compromise? Where am I going to draw the line? Yeah, because there is give and take. You've got, okay, I can move that. But there comes a point you think, actually, my conscience is now troubling me. I'm not going to do it. It's very, very important. Ever so important.
And then he says, I've got a few things against you. Though. You've been faithful, you've been good, but you've got some there who are teaching to Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Also, some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Very similar teaching, they reckon. It was basically to do with this. Listen, everyone else is into idolatry. Just get involved. You might, in your heart, you don't have to really worship the gods, but just for the sake of convenience and getting by, just get involved with it. Jesus says, absolutely not. Repent. Repent. Because as a believer, it's your distinction that marks you out. And if you lose that distinction to try and fit in, you will lose the heart of what you're about. Let's look at Jesus for a moment, shall we? He is the only person ever to choose to have been born. It's not like that for us, is it? We just find ourselves here. You ever notice that? We just think, man, I'm just here. <laughs> it wasn't like that for Jesus. He said, I'm going to now, be, I'm going to be born. And so he chooses to totally immerse himself in a world that's filled with darkness. He chooses to completely engage, to incarnate in darkness. Right? The world's full of darkness. He's the light of the world. He chooses to completely incarnate. He's completely involved and connected. I'm going to be in this. And then, as he does that, he lives the most remarkably different and distinct life you can find throughout the scriptures. So he's totally, by his own will, engaged and involved, and yet he's completely different. And people, some people say, you know, yeah, well, no, I go to clubs and parties and that, and that's fine, because Jesus did. Absolutely Jesus did. Yes, and absolutely you can too, yes. But look what happened. People were impacted. People were impacted. He didn't melt into the crowd. He got the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because he was at these things. But if you'd seen him there, what was he doing? Most likely he was healing the sick. Most likely he was bringing a word of compassion to someone who needed it. He certainly wasn't drunk and eating too much. He wasn't. And so absolutely, those places are not no-go zones. I mean, we never want to be one of those churches that says, you mustn't go to clubs, you must not. No, you must. <gasps> You're missionary. You must. But make a difference. <laughs> make a difference. I tell you, you've got to be on your front foot in those settings. Because those settings very often are sold to the flesh absolutely sold to the flesh and to lust and sexual immorality. So you've got to go there on, in a good place with God. You've got to go there strong. Oh, so you want to go there not just by yourself, but with other believers, and you want to go there on mission. Yeah? Very, very important. This is what Jesus did. You might say, but that's what Jesus did. You're talking, I'm not Jesus. No, I'm, no you're not, but he lives in you, doesn't he? Yeah. Doesn't he? Lives inside of you. By his spirit. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He lives inside of you. It's the same Jesus by his spirit. When we say, we say, Jesus, I want to give my life to you, come and live inside of me. It's the same Jesus. He comes and lives inside of us and he comes with the same power. And he comes to, to change us and to equip us. That's what he comes to do. And I know we're all a work in progress and we've all got different things that we're working through. But listen, guys, it's the same Jesus who lives in us. Hallelujah. So we can bring his, his presence wherever we go. But Jesus says, you know, you guys, you've got people that you're just compromising. And if you don't repent, I'm going to come and I'm actually going to wage war with you. That's to the church. I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to speak words that are actually going to just cut you down. Because you actually, you're, 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 it seems like you're a believer and so you're, you're, you're presenting the Christian thing but you're in compromise with sin and idolatry and so as a result of that you're bringing a disgrace to my name in a way that unbelievers don't. I'm going to deal with you. Now, we looked at me at Ephesus. Jesus said, I'm going to close the whole thing down <laughs> if you don't overcome 
your timidity and your coldness. Here he just says, there's some of you in this church, I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with you. And it's going to be serious because you are actually blaspheming my name by naming me as your Lord and then living like this. Repent. And then there's this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows. Now what does this mean? I was thinking, it sounds great. I love a white stone, but I didn't know what it meant. You know, the, you, know the, you ever get that? Think, yeah, come on. And I thought, you know, I've got to preach this. I can't just say, guys, let's get white stones. I've got to be able to know what it means. So, I, you know, I had to sort of study. And, well, first of all, I sort of, you know, I thought, I'll figure it out before the Lord. Right, I'll read what the clever people say. You know? <laughs> I'll go to the historians. And I realised I never would have got it because the, in terms of hidden manner and white stone with a new name on it, there's no other biblical references for this stuff. Whereas very often you do, do, you do a word search, oh, you're back in the Old Testament, oh, then you're there and you can piece it together, ah, it means this. There's nowhere else. So you have to find, what does it mean? Obviously we know what manna is, it was the, the heavenly food that came down to the Israelites in the wilderness. And we know Jesus said, I'm the true bread from heaven. Um, and yet there's this kind of, this hidden thing, what does that mean and how does that work? Really, what, it's, what it seems to suggest is part of it is, is it could be, see, there's, there's some coulds and, coulds, mate, coulds and maybes. It could be down to the fact that part of Jewish tradition was that some of, some of, some of the manna um, at the time of uh, one of the times when uh, I think it was um, Jerusalem was conquered, it was, they reckoned that it, it had been in the ark and it had been hidden and, and, st- and stored away and it would be brought out again at the time when the Messiah comes. And so it kind of, it's tied in with the messianic kind of expectation and hope. And, it's the whole, and basically what it refers to, it refers to identification with Jesus and feasting on an intimacy with Jesus. It's about him. He's the true bread that came from heaven. But in that hidden element, part of it as well, is the, it's, it's a relationship which is public, but also it's tremendously, it's a secret, it's a thing in the heart. And so Jesus is saying, it's about intimacy with me. As you conquer, and as you overcome those who try to overcome you, the Nicolaitans, they try and overcome you with compromise. It's subtle, it's well-reasoned, it looks perfectly reasonable. No, you can do this too. You can hold this Jesus stuff together with this. It'll, it'll, go, it'll, it'll be fine. But really what's happening in the spiritual realm is that there's an attempt to overcome and to consume your passion for the Lord. And Jesus says, as you overcome that, and as you spot it, and you say no to that, and you can keep your heart for Christ, as you do that, you will know intimacy with me, you will know a close walk with me that will be beyond anything you could imagine. It's the hidden manner. But not also that. I'll give you a white stone. Now, in biblical times, a white stone can be two things. Firstly, imagine we're, we're, we're trying to decide, Davina's up on trial, we're trying to decide, is she guilty, you know, is she guilty or not? Is she guilty of being the most prettiest woman in London? That's what we're trying to, trying to determine. Right. I vote guilty with all, all my might, you know, and we've got to decide it. And, um, um, oh, sorry, I'll try and get a bit more serious. Just imagine she's done something, done something naughty, uh, she's done something wrong, and we're trying to dis- okay, imagine there's 12 of us on the jury, how are we going to decide? Well, we'll have a black stone and a white stone. And if we decide she's guilty, we'll put our black stone in. If we decide, no, she's innocent, we're going to acquit her, we'll put our white stone in. That's how it would work, you see? So Jesus is saying, you know, you overcome, and you get, you get, my, you get my verdict of, yeah, you're really mine. You're totally, you're totally acquitted. You're, you're, totally, you're totally justified in me. Absolutely, you've shown that my work in you, uh, yeah, you're mine. Okay? So it's acquittal, but not only that, if, imagine if you were going, imagine if uh, Torsten and Fiona were putting on a party, and it was such an amazing party, but only, only, you had to have a certain token to get in. You had to, you know, your, your name's not down, you're not coming in. That kind of, it was one of those situations. Well, in biblical times, you'd, you'd have your white stone, right? And we'd like, you'd be like, you show you what, oh, in you go. You've got a white stone, okay? And so really, it's talking about, it's talking about acquittal, 
and it's talking about entrance. Now, you couple that with the manner, and you've got acquittal and entrance to a feast. Yes? Now, bear in mind the compromise of this church was that they were going along to idolatrous feasts, because all, all the whole society was built around that. You would eat food that would be sacrificed to idols, and you'd be worshipping and praising the gods of these particular things, and then often you'd end up just all sleeping around and having orgies, because often you find um, idolatry and um, immorality come together. So, and, and Jesus is saying, no, don't go there anymore, don't do that, and guess what? You'll be totally acquitted so that you can enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yeah? Revelation 19. And this is what we're going to end with. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be good to see you guys there. (laughs) We'll look at each other and we'll go. Do you remember those cold mornings in that canteen <laughs> where we spoke about the glory and we dreamed about the glory and we knew something of the glory and we had that down payment in our hearts but it seemed very often like the pressures outweighed the glory and it seemed very often like, oh, we're going to get through and sometimes we even questioned, oh man, am I even saved? I feel like such a flop. And remember those days and look, we're here. He is faithful. He brought us through. We've made it. And I think I'll be as amazed as anyone that I'm there. And I think we'll all be amazed. We're actually, we made it. And you think, you think how, how do you make it to the marriage supper of the Lamb? How? I think simply it's that you say to Jesus, Jesus, you know what? You are amazing. And when I look at what you do and what you require, and then I look at myself, I actually feel, how's this going to work? And then I look at your promises, where you say to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power was made perfect in your weakness. Well, I look at your promises where you say, apart from me, you can do nothing, but abide in me and you will bear much fruit. And I start to realise, you know what? In you, hidden in you, I can do this. And then we end up saying things like Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In all these things, I overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved me. We're going to be at the marriage supper. If we know him and walk with him and love him, these are the true words of God. These are the true words of God. Maybe you're here and you, you know, you're not even sure where you're at. You don't even fully believe or you totally don't believe. I just want to say to you, and it might sound arrogant, but I want to say this to you. These are the true words of God. <laughs> these are the true. And Jesus said, if anyone wants to know whether the words I say are truly from God, I've forgotten what he said. <laughs> I've always loved it, John 7. If anyone, no, that's it. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If you want to know God's will, if you really want to know, God, are you there? If so, I want to follow you. If you want to know, 
If really in your heart you do, then when you hear Jesus, you'll know. These are the true words of God. These are the true words of God. Because his words come in like a sword and they separate your corrupt desires and lusts that really don't want it to be a God so you can do what you like. Separate that from that you that was made in the image of God that really just wants to come home. I want to say to you, come home. Come home. Everything's been done so that you can come home. The price has been paid. Jesus has died in your place and suffered the judgment of God so you can go free. He's risen from the dead so you can know eternal life. Come home. And if you are a believer, but you're just under the cosh and you're struggling and you're just like, man alive, I feel in the midst of a satanic whirlwind, I tell you what, we will get around you, we will pray with you, we will support you, we will stand with you where we can, we will resource you because we want to get you through it and we are willing to work with you through it because those seasons come and it's, it's hard. It's hard and believe it or not, we have all been there and we do know what it's like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you, I want to just thank you, Lord, that you do tell us the truth. I tell you, God, sometimes I feel it'd be easier if you didn't. But I know, Lord, that you love us too much to leave us with half the picture. You love us too much to let us just simply do what's right in our own eyes and end up in another dead end with more regret, more shame, more guilt. Thank you that you say, this is the way. Walk in it. And you say, I am the way. (laughs) The truth and the life. And Lord, we look to you today. We look to you now, even now. Each of us facing different pressures. The pressure of just living in the city, adapting to city life, the pace, the attitude, the pressures, the seductions, the loneliness. Different challenges for each of us. Particular jobs and workplaces. Scenarios. Promises from other sources that would promise us so much. The pressure that is in there. And very often the satanic lure behind it. Come and give grace to your people, Lord, now. Afresh. Even as we take the bread and the wine, I pray there will be grace given as we partake of Christ again, as we remember him again until he returns, as we remember, Father, your Son, who is seated beside you on the throne, all glorious, all victorious, with the scars that will remain forever for us. As we remember him, I pray, God, that you would fill by your Spirit, you would fill our hearts with fresh faith, fresh confidence, fresh resolve. That like Daniel and his friends, Lord, in the midst of polytheism and all kinds of, all kinds of different pressures, we would overcome. We would overcome. Just as your church in this setting, in the New Testament times, overcame and the gospel flourished. So in us and so through us, we pray. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If the band would like to come back up, we're going to take the bread and the wine as we sing our Songs of praise and worship to Jesus.